this week's I Like My Subs Nuclear edition of Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly in the studio with Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Jess. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm um, as I've I, I, I won't complain to our listeners as much as I complain to you about it. But I've, I'm on the overnight this this week, so I am I am on another planet. But but we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll do our best. Night shift is so you're um you're preparing the the early morning first thing newsletter. Yes, the cracky worm. The uh, cracky worm. A free service that anyone can subscribe to. <laughs> And that means that you're writing from midnight till 4am or something like that? You know, so, so, somewhere around that, yeah. You've got to always wait. The thing is getting the front do you, pages Do you just try it. and knock it off by two or something? Is that possible? <laughs> um, on a slow news day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sort of um, still kind of coming down from Golden Plains. Not in that <laughs> set. Anyway, you know what I mean. I don't, you know, party like I, I don't bounce back like I used to. So between the two of us, we might have at least one or two coherent thoughts. And thankfully, we will be joined uh, by our former journalist and now leading voice on media and ethics, Dr. Dennis Muller. Um, he'll be talking to us about the extraordinary couple of weeks in the life of the BBC over the pond. Although I feel like it's been a long time coming, all those little... Um, the the sort of um, public broadcasters are fair game. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah, for sure. For criticism, you know that pressure has been mounting for many years, but um, the cracks are really starting to show in the BBC the last couple of weeks. So um, uh, hopefully, uh, Dennis will have a few things to say about that, and also the parallels that we might be able to draw for our own public broadcaster here. Although we were talk- talking, there's um, a lot that. Um, a lot that someone who is an expert on media and ethics could talk about locally this week as well. <laughs> yes, yes. We could have just brought Dennis on for the whole show. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's start with some local goings-on. Former PM Paul Keating certainly made a splash this week, as is his want, with his <laughs> National Press Club address. Uh, Charlie, what was your take on it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was, it was was incredible. You don't, I mean, you know... It's 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 rare that you see a, a former leader make this much of an impact. Every now and then you get like you know miserable ghosts or something. You know you get some wonderful quote from them, but like usually they they say their piece. It makes page seven of the paper, and you go, oh, well, that's an interesting point of view. This time Keating went went ham on on, on everyone basically. So he he was essentially talking about the AUKUS submarine deal. That's uh, the tripartite uh, agreement between the US, uh, the UK, and Australia to build uh, nuclear powered submarines. Um, uh, for for Australia, which won't, won't uh, hit the water for like twenty years, but you know, uh, we'll set it and set us back a cool four hundred billion dollars. You know, like give or take. <laughs> give or take. Um, so, uh, so he sort of he he he. I mean, he really went hard on the thing. He, he called it the. Uh, the worst international decision by an Australian Labour government since the uh, since Billy Hughes tried to introduce conscription during the First World War. Uh, he said every Labour Party branch member will wince when they realise the party that we all fight for is returning to our former colonial master, Britain, to find our security in Asia, 236 years after the Europeans first grabbed this continent from its indigenous people. 
Um, he's very good at making people seem like little bitches, isn't he? <laughs> he's got uh, he's got a hell of a way with language. I think we. <laughs> he really does. Um, and so he sort of, you know, he went through the the dopes and the ningnongs of the uh, the national security establishment, but he really went particularly hard. And this is why it's sort of quite a, it's a specifically a media question. I think there's a, there's a few ways that it, it sort of relates to the media in Australia. He he went quite hard and quite personally against quite a few, a, a few reasonably high profile journalists. Um, the national correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald, Matthew Knott, who last week co-penned uh, a series called Red Alert um, well, that- about the the headline i mean i think that a lot of people went hard on that you know oh, yeah, in the last for sure, week for sure. because because of that headline australia faces the threat of war with china within 3 years and we're not ready i mean if there's not mm. you know that's kind of warmongering sensationalism if you've ever heard with heard a, it. Well, you know accompanied by a a, a sort of a, a map of china with its red flag with mm. with um fighter jets flying away from it towards us. I mean, it was, yeah, it was pretty... It, it uh, was, yeah, real reds under the bed kind of and, stuff. And it was an interesting sort of... And the thing about it was, it was just it was just academics they were spoken to. Um, mm. Anyway, we'll, 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 perhaps we'll get into yeah, the, we'll into get the, that, into the yeah. detail of that in a second. Yeah. Um, uh, Keating, having been asked a question by, by Knott, um, <laughs> said that he should hang his head in shame. He said, I'm surprised you ha- even have the gall to stand up in public <laughs> and ask such a question, frankly. You ought to do the right thing and drum yourself out of Australian journalism. Like... Bloody hell! That, I mean, that, and I think you know you, you you can sort of you can you can you can think well. Keating probably that's actually that's the kind of thing that you know if that were Trump or Morrison doing something like that we would say that was unacceptable. Mm. And I suppose um, uh, so. I, I don't think you know. I think some of the response he's gotten saying he shouldn't have said that is actually quite fair. That is a, that's a shitty thing to <laughs> that's just that's just shitty uh, speech making. I think that sort of undermines your point slightly. But but essentially that that's that, that speech really and and, and negative uh, responses to it kind of just dominated all the nine papers this morning. Um the Sydney Morning and the and the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age both separately did editorials kind of Rebu- re- rebutting what he had to say. Bevan Shields, that, that headline was my favourite. I, what was it? His piece was like, I don't mind criticism. But this goes too far, yeah. Well, <laughs> my favourite part of that of that particular editorial was the his his specific response because we all know that this is, this is all coming back to the Red Alert series and he says, in defence of it, uh, Red Alert, a three-part examination of the most pressing national security challenges facing Australia, has generated mixed feedback, which I welcomed. <laughs> Some of you didn't like the series. Others viewed it as a brave assessment of the threats posed by the Chinese Communist Party and of Australia's lack of preparedness to prevent those threats from spilling into war. So he really gives Thanks, both Mrs. sides of the argument really equal weight there. <laughs> Thanks, Mrs Shields. That one came from Bevan's mum. There, there was a piece in The Guardian that certainly didn't like it, um, uh, which was actually um, – it's by Margaret Simons, who's, who's we've had on the show before. It's probably due friend, to I think friend, friend of the show, I think. Friend of the her. show. She's great. Our first ever guest, actually. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, but she actually um, managed to talk to uh, a number of um, defence experts and their um, universal uh, response was that it was, a, it was a pretty shocking thing to do and that it was um, irresponsible – hyperbolic and um, propagandistic and that there have long been, um, you know, champions of war in the defence. You can can find them, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. defence ranks and it was was, um, just cheap and nasty to go down that route. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, my my, my colleague John Buckley uh, talked to a few people uh, at the the Nine Papers today as sort of 
in response to this recent outbreak. And there was pretty mixed responses to the series from the sounds of things within the staff as well. There was people who said, look, this is actually a very worthwhile area of investigation and, and we should have done that. We shouldn't have done it the way that we did it, yeah. which I think is a very defensible yeah. point of view. I mean, there the are other same... people who were like, that should never have gone to print. Yeah, <laughs> They're the same with Keating in the sense that, you know, a lot of what he said, you know, was just typical Keating and, mm. yeah, p- probably a bit nasty, but it's kind of annoying as well that the response has just been, he shouldn't have talked like that, especially not about Penny Wong and, you know, stuff mm. like that, which I get, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. But why is it, you know, that that AUKUS deal should face criticism? Yeah, yeah. And where is the criticism? Yeah, Where's ma- the criticism in the media? Where's mm. the criticism elsewhere? It's just been tumbleweed for something that was like just came out and felt like it sort of, you know, it, it, it's kind of, it's it's like incredible. literally came out of nowhere when came it was first Came out of nowhere. Ask Emmanuel Macron if it came out of nowhere. <laughs> but but even this this iteration of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's weird that it did come a week after that, that <laughs> yes, front page as an well. It's just bit of like, timing. what the hell is going on? And, and where is the, you know... You know, yes, Keating probably deployed the least diplomatic mm. way, and it was all about Keating, of course, yeah, yeah. as oh, it always yeah, yeah. is. Mm. But uh, where are the other voices no, of I, criticism I, I, of this freaking deal? I completely agree. I mean, I think I've I've never seen. Um, I, I, I remember the the comment section on I think I believe it was Monday uh, of the Australian. It was five glowing pieces about Labour's performance on this orchestra deal. I have never seen the Australian comment section so unanimously <laughs> lustful for a Labour policy. I mean, to be fair, they got no choice, really. They said it was a good idea when Morrison had it. They can't really back away from that now. Uh, and... <laughs> Uh, and all Peter Dutton could do to make some headlines was, you know, take the, a pot shot at the NDIS. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and make sure. I also, he, I, I, my favourite bit was so they're spending three, something something in the region of three hundred sixty eight billion. Although I'm, I'm, I'm oh, interested just to see a little the, bit of cash under the yeah, bed. which which you know, I mean, it is over several decades, et cetera, et cetera. So, but like um, that, uh, yes, a, a a military alliance reorienting us to the UK and the US for the next twenty years. Uh, explicitly against um, one of our major trading partners. Mm. That all to me does sound like something that w- is worthy of some pretty serious interrogation. 100%. And it's been, and I think that I think it's it's one of those things where. And I I thought like it's interesting that um, Keating was against that deal, but you know, and also slating um, Penny Wong as well because actually she's been working really hard to improve diplomacy. Oh, yeah, with China, yeah. so it actually it doesn't help her. <laughs> no, that, no, you know it must be. She's in a difficult position now. Yeah, that, and that's definitely one. I mean, that, that was one thing that the it was like the first thing that this Labour government did was Wong and and or Albanese went on a big world tour to kind of go and try and sort of repair a lot of the damage that had been done to our yeah. international relations uh, during the Morrison government. Um, yeah, so this can't this cannot be helpful in in that way. Um, but you know, inter- international political diplomacy ain't my bag. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. Dennis Muller worked as a journalist for 27 years, including as assistant editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and associate editor at The Age, and is now a leading expert on media ethics. Dr Muller teaches media ethics for the Master of Journalism at Melbourne Uni and is the author of Media Ethics and Disasters and Journalism Ethics for the Digital Age. Dennis is an honorary fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism, and tonight he'll be joining us as we turn our attention to the role of of public broadcasters in light of recent revelations at the BBC. Welcome, Dennis, to Triple R this evening. Thanks very much, Jess. 
So um, we'll get to the recent BBC controversies in a moment, but I just thought it might be interesting if you could first um, give us a bit of context because the um, the way that the BBC f- fun- is funded and sort of set up is a little bit different from, say, the ABC here. Can you uh, tell us about, I guess, its structure and fundamental role in the UK? Yeah, well, its structure is fundamentally the same as the ABC. The ABC is actually modelled on the BBC. It's what calls what's called a Reithian broadcaster after John Reith, who was the founding director general of the BBC. Uh, but the funding is quite different, yeah. or has been up till, up till now. Uh, basically, the funding has been based on a licence fee, which people who own television sets and and who access uh, the BBC streaming service have got to pay every year. We used to have a thing like that here. We used to have a radio and TV licence system for the same purpose, but it was abolished a long time ago, I think, by the Whitlam government. And, um, and But what's happened with the BBC of late is that it's run foul in just the same way the ABC did of the Conservative government here. It's run foul of the Conservative government in Britain, and it's had its funding cut very severely over the past 10 years. Mm. And now, most recently, the, the government announced that it was ending the licence system. It's freezing the, ABC, the BBC's funding for two more years. Uh, and then it was going to uh, give it some very small increases. But then after 2027, the, the licence fee was going to be abolished. So it will be at the mercy of the, uh, of the national government, just the way the ABC is at the mercy of our national government. And if we within that, that context, I guess it has been a bruising couple of weeks for the BBC in terms of its, you know, reputation or its sort of stated aim of independence. They suspended sports reporter uh, Gary Lineker for making public his views on government refugee policy on social media. They refused to broadcast a David Attenborough climate crisis documentary reportedly for fear of right-wing backlash. Uh, recently leaked text messages and um, WhatsApp messages between ministers' offices and the BBC during the pandemic resulted in editors sending out emails telling journalists not to use the word lockdown in the early days of the p- pandemic. It doesn't paint any kind of a picture of a broadcaster that is independent and impartial <laughs> working in the no. public interest. What do you make of all no. that? Well, it paints uh, a picture of a national uh, broadcaster, public sector broadcaster, that's been completely cowed mm. by the pressure that the successive coalition or over there, the Conservative governments have been putting on. I mean, there have been a, a Tory government in power in England since 2010. Mm. And for the last 12 years, they have been uh, assaulting the BBC at every opportunity. But what happens inevitably is that the organisation begins to get punch drunk. It begins to get cowed and browbeaten. On top of that, of course, you've got the problem of the government being the, per- the, the organisation that appoints the board of the BBC, mm. just mm. as the government appoints the board of the ABC. And exactly as the um, successive Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments stacked the ABC board with Liberal Party mates, then exactly the same thing has happened in England. And the most recent and, and worst example of it, I think, was the appointment of the present chairman, a guy called Richard Sharp. Yeah. Now, he was, he was appointed just after he gave £400,000, 400,000 old-fashioned pounds, to the Conservative um, campaign cause and then organised an £800,000 loan guarantee for Boris Johnson. And just after that, 
surprise, surprise, Boris appoints him chairman of the BBC. So you can see that in just the same way that the um, success of coalition governments here stacked and undermined the independence of the board of the ABC, the, um, the Johnson and Sunak governments in England have done precisely the same thing there. Des, um, it's Charlie here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it feels a little bit like for the entirety of the time that I've been sort of following the media relatively closely, you've seen attacks of this sort on both the BBC in, in the UK and, and the ABC here. Was there ever a time, I mean, it seems like perhaps the, 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 the licence fee element preserved a bit more of the of the independence of the of the BBC and a bit more of a kind of, uh, yeah, a bit more of a, a safe way. Uh, but has there ever been a time when either... Public, when public broadcasting hasn't been this kind of lightning rod for for sort of attacks from the government of the day and from sort of I guess you know, right wing competitors in, in in rival media places. No, there's never been a golden age, Charlie. Um, and uh, and both the BBC and the ABC have come under uh, quite frequent attacks from the governments of the day. And here, the Hawke government was um, extremely critical of the ABC, but. Um, but it stopped short of the, a prolonged assault on the ABC, and it also stopped short of using t- uh, funding cuts in retaliation for uh, what it perceived to be the wrongs the ABC was committing against it. And similarly in England, um, certainly the Labour government of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown didn't like what the BBC often did uh, in, in covering, in particular, uh, the war in Iraq. I mean... Mm-hmm. The Panorama program on the BBC was uh, basically blew the whistle on the fact that the weapons of mass destruction line was a complete lie. So uh, Blair and Brown were were very angry with the BBC, but they didn't then retaliate against it as these conservative governments tend to do. And I think the reason for that is that there's a um, there's, there's a kind of argument that's got around without any basis that I can see that the public broadcasts are somehow left-wing. Mm. Um, and you get this in, in Australia all the time. People are always banging on about the left-wing ABC. Well, it's just nonsense. Mm. But but you can see how this buys into the the political... It's a, it's a political gift to the Conservatives because they can then say, well, the ABC or the BBC are inherently biased against it, so uh, why shouldn't we make their life difficult? What's the end point? I mean, we've seen a lot of pressure on on the ABC, not just from the government, but certainly also from conservative lobby groups, um, to your point, just constantly, you know, calling out any form of bias. We've seen, um, you know, ministers um, uh, sue individual journalists um, for for reports, I mean, for for reports that they've made. But at the same time... it surely still serves a purpose, having a functioning public broadcaster. What, what sort of um, endpoint do you think that they're, they're trying to get to? Just to it, Well, uh, I, I think the endpoint for the previous coalition government was to marginalise the ABC. We know that. There was lots of evidence about it because basically uh, they wanted, in, in particularly in the days of the Abbott government, uh, they basically tried to prevent the ABC from going digital. They wanted the ABC to basically stick to analogue broadcasting. 
and were being pushed along in this endeavour by news corporations yeah, who, of course, course regard the, the ABC as a commercial rival. And they didn't want the ABC getting into digital because they knew that the ABC would make a good job of digital broadcasting, which is what they've done. <laughs> so the, the end game is to marginalise the ABC. And then, of course, the argument that would follow from that was, well, nobody watches the ABC, nobody listens to the ABC, why do we bother with it? That, that's the end game. Just to defund it, essentially. Well, yes, you basically get to the point where the political argument is made out, well, no-one watches it, no-one listens to it, why do we have it, let's kill it. I think, you know, you made a good point before that um, it's almost like um, the the fear of um, repercussions, you become sort of so um, afraid of being accused of being left-wing that you can swing the other way. And self-censorship as well from the sounds of things as well. Yeah. How how do you think, you know, what is the what position does that put, you know, individual journalists in or, you know, young journalists who are starting out? Um, who find themselves sort of at the centre of some of these attacks. From from your point of, you know, ethics and media, what does that do <laughs> when there are very few, you know, big news outlets for, for, for new emerging journalists to kind of be employed by in this country? Um, well, it puts them under, under very unfair pressure because uh, what we've seen with the ABC, I'm afraid, is over the last few years we've seen extremely weak editorial leadership. Now, if you're the editor of, of a major newspaper or broadcaster, uh, you've got one overriding responsibility, and it's this, that you exist to provide your journalists with a safe space within which to do good journalism. If you can't do that, you're not up to the job. And I've got to tell you that the ABC's editorial leadership over the past decade has not been up to the job. And so it has left relatively junior staff exposed to pressure, even if not direct pressure, indirect pressure. Let me tell you a, a personal story. This is a story that happened to me. When Remember Barnaby Joyce got his um, staff of Vicky Campion pregnant? Remember that? Yes. Okay. How can we forget? So... <laughs> So Barnaby refuses to um, to talk about it uh, to the media, but he accepts $150,000 from Channel 7 to go on their Sunday night program and talk about it there for, for money. Mm. Well, ABC Online rang me and said, can you write a commentary on this for us? I said, yeah, sure. So I wrote a commentary, and in my first sentence, uh, I, said, I said that um, the Joyce's decision to accept this money shows he's unfit for public office. <laughs> well, I got a call from the ABC asking if I could not say that because, and, and I quote directly, things are a bit tricky with the government at the moment. Oh, no. <laughs> so I withdrew the article from the ABC and gave it to the AG published it unchanged. Now, that's a small example, but the person, the poor wretch wow. who had to ring me was some junior, you know, C-grade desk person in Brisbane. I mean, the, the whole thing had filtered down to that level where she felt that um, that she would be <clears throat> in trouble yep. if she didn't ask me to take that out. Well, I mean, it's a small example, but we've just seen the other day Karen Percy, who's a very experienced ABC journalist, saying publicly that there has been self-censorship. So it, it, it's, it's kind of, it's insinuated itself right down into the basically working ranks of the ABC. Gosh. Dennis, do you see any um, 
any hope for this dynamic to to improve over the coming years? Do you feel that? Um, I suppose again, with a with a government less ideologically in its bones opposed to a public broadcaster, is there some chance that some of this could start to right itself, or is the damage done? Oh no, the damage isn't irretrievable. But what has to happen is that the board of the ABC has got to be spilt. Uh, the whole board is completely stacked mm. with Liberal Party mates, uh, and um, unfortunately, the Albanese government is taking a very conservative approach to this. And it's so far replacing only uh, members of the board whose terms have expired or, in the case of Fiona Belfer, who's been forced to resign because of a perceived conflict of interest. Now, they're going to replace those two. And, of course, you've got the the, the staff elected member, which is, uh, and that election is going through at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But if the the Albanese government persists in this step-by-step, stage-at-a-time uh, replacement, they'll only replace five out of the seven by the end of their term of office, mm. by the time of the next election. So either they're going to have to grasp the nettle and say this whole joint needs to be fixed, uh, or they're going to let it go on until finally in 2020, towards the yeah, middle of 2026, they'll finally have the chance to replace the entire board. So um, that's, that's where it has to start, because all of this starts at the top, and then, of course, uh, one would hope with, with a new and more independent-minded board, then you would get a stiffening of the resolve of the editorial leadership, and that would have the same trickle-down positive effect that the current trickle-down negative effect is having. Do you think there needs to be some sort of? I mean, I guess it's they're not. No government is going to legislate for for a more robustly independent broadcaster. But you know, is there any other way that um, that, that that there could be a bit more of a separation between the broadcaster and the government? Uh, well, it's very difficult unless you have um, a system as they've had in England, where you have what's called a, a, a hypothecated source of income. That's to say, a source of income from the licence fee, which is actually dedicated in law to, to um, funding the broadcaster. Short of that, um, no. Uh, basically, the, um, the other, but of course the other important thing is that when it comes to appointments to the board, that they follow an independent merit-based selection process. Now, the Gillard government set this up back in 2012, I think, basically to prevent the ABC board becoming politicised like this. But, of course, uh, as soon as they lost office in 2013, the coalition government disregarded it completely. And I don't think there's been... I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. There has, there's not a single member of the current board who's been appointed by the, through the merit system. Oh, isn't that interesting? What's the point of it then, hey? <laughs> well, yes, I mean, the point of it is an attempt to make it independent. But if you haven't got the, the government of the day prepared to honour that... Um, commitment, Mm. then there's very little to be done. As far as the ABC Act is concerned, the Act is perfectly clear. In Section 6 of the Act, which contains Charter, it sets out the responsibilities of the board, and and that includes standing up for the independence of the ABC. Now, uh, Ida Buttrose, the current chair, has from time to time done good work. I mean, Mm. when Louise Milligan came under attack from Christian Porter over her story about the allegations of rape against him, which, of course, he denied... Um, she was very vigorous in her defence of of him. And so, you know, she has done good work in this area, but the 
fact remains, she was a captain's pick by Scott Morrison. Mm. I mean, she did not get there through the merit-based selection process. And it's that sort of um, behind-the-scenes, backdoor deal-making and offers and acceptance of offers that I think is extremely damaging to the ABC. Is there also something in the culture of, um, well, especially with political journalism in this country, I mean, you know... um, it's every um, politician seems to have a direct line to journalists, calling, contacting them day and night, letting them know directly what they think of their work. You know, there's a real culture of... Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't know talking to um, some journalists who are covering, you know, one of the recent elections, as soon as the local politician knew that they were on their round, they were constantly messaging them all the time. Um you know, is there something about also, you know, that just politics and journalism is so inter- intertwined in this country as well? It's hard to know who you, re- you know, who you're responsive to. Well, if you're a journalist, you've got one responsibility only, and it's to the public. Mm. And it doesn't matter how much pressure you've got. And I've been, as you said at the start, I've been a, a very senior journalist on the Asian City Morning Herald. You know, I know what pressure looks like from powerful people, from, you know, chief justices and politicians, premiers and prime ministers and treasurers. I know what it feels like. Um, you've just got to say no. Um, you, you, you know, if, you, if they ring up and grizzle, you'll say, well, is there anything factually the matter with it? <laughs> and if they say no, you say, rightio, see ya. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, what are you supposed to... You, you, your first responsibility is to the public. Yeah. And I remember a marvellous instance of this when a guy called Michael Smith, who was a very strong editor of The Age, um, I was in his office when he got a, a call from Paul Keating one day. And Keating was ranting about <laughs> a, um, an article in The Age by the then economics editor, Tim Colbatch, about tax reform. Mm. And I watched Smith. Um, I, I watched him listen to Keating. I could hear Keating, even though I was, you know, only in the same room. <laughs> and, and every now and again, Smith would say, yep, or nope. <laughs> and after about 20 minutes, Keating hung up. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know this of, of my own knowledge, but I will bet you my house that Colbatch never knew that conversation took place. Yeah, amazing. Mm. That's what editing newspapers looks like. That's what good leadership looks like. Um, That's what good leadership looks like. You've just given us a lovely segue, um, <laughs> given that you were an editor at um, both the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. We were um, chatting before before we started this interview with you about the um, the series in The Age last week, Red Alert, uh, and the and the Sydney Morning Herald, and uh, about the uh, war imminent war risk with China. Wondering what your thoughts on that, as as someone who's um, dug very deep into or is an expert in journalism and ethics. Well, two things I think, Jess. Really, one is I thought it was highly irresponsible. It was sensationalist, inflammatory, and basically against the public interest because it came at a time when the new government is trying its level best to tread this diplomatic line between um, shoring up Australia's security uh, against China while at the same time trying to repair the trade relationship. Mm -hmm. So I I thought for that reason um, it was irresponsible and sensationalist. But in a sense it gets worse because they've made a complete ass of themselves. Um, That that graphic that shows the aeroplanes flying out of China that looks like a complete rip-off 
of a publicity poster for a 1964 film called Dr. Strangelove. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, my God, it really satire. does. It does. It was a satire. Can you imagine Peter Sellers as a deranged American <laughs> Air Force general? That's what the film was about. Now, they, they basically, I mean, if you look at the poster and look at that graphic, that, that's what it's and, and, and even more, the film was itself based on a novel, a crime or a spy thriller called, wait for it, Red Alert. Red Alert. No. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you, you can't make it up, I tell you. You can't make it up. Oh, so, I'm going to write to Bevan Shields. <laughs> <laughs> Ask him if he's a big Terry Eagleton fan or a Kubrick guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, really, at, at every level, it was, it was a disaster. I mean, um, it, it's received criticism from, uh, from serious scholars um, including from Scott Birchill at Deakin, who's a natural relations specialist, um, who said that the panel that they assembled to discuss this question, he likened to an echo chamber, basically mm. a collection of people all of the same view, all with hawkish views of China, and, and all making these fairly apocalyptic propositions uh, and excluding a whole range of other voices that, who might have had uh, perhaps not a, a diametrically opposed view, but at least a more nuanced view or, or a different view altogether. So I think the the way in which the panel was assembled clearly has problems. But above all, the problem came with the presentation, which which just, I mean, it, it made a laughing stock of the newspapers. And if they really wanted to think that they wanted to be taken seriously as contributors to this debate, well, they've just shot themselves in the foot. Amazing. And one more question. What did you think about um, Keating's address to the National Press Club? I didn't hear it. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) Well, there you go. That's probably good because we've run out of time. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much, Dennis. That was a fantastic conversation and um, we'd love to have you back again on Spin Cycle for um, more perspectives and more. more, I'd love to hear some more stories about your time in journalism. There's some great ones there. (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks so much, Dennis. Charlie and I just sort of sitting here chatting about what to talk about next because <laughs> it's kind of rare that um, a, a Newsweek is so heavily dominated by one story and there's really not much else going on. But it's been one of those weeks, hasn't it? It has. It has. I mean, we, we you know we've, we've got the early uh, kind of uh, stirrings of, of some of the as we talked about the the, the humanising of the various players in the New South Wales election, which is kind of interesting oh, yeah. but very very standard stuff, really. Standard stuff. I mean, it's, for me, it's just the um, the kind of um, uh, hypocrisy of yeah, yeah. you know a couple of weeks ago when um, that weird story when Perite's brother was on the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of the greatest TV news reports of <laughs> yes, all time. That's right. From oh, Channel Nine, just like knocking was, on various people's doors. She was and, amazing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That buzzing on doorbells. <laughs> she was having the best time, the time of her life, <laughs> zipping around New South Wales <laughs> on the chase for Peritate's <laughs> brother. It was so much fun to watch. Um, he was trying to avoid. You know, if t- he, if time ticked down before he was made available for a, a, uh, um, a particular a, a Senate com- hearing, yeah, a committee yeah, yeah. hearing, uh, then that wouldn't impinge on this upcoming election. It wouldn't create more scandal because basically, once the time was done, then that was it. They had to go into caretaker mode, so they couldn't they couldn't continue with that work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and there was um, 
some very sort of forthright, angry uh, doorstops from Perite, or when he was getting, you know, in, in doorstop press conferences, and he's he was asked about his brother. He's like, "Leave my family out of this. <laughs> this politics is this is me. This is about me. I'm the premier. Leave my family out of yes. this." Now this week, fucking hell, the amount of <laughs> newspaper articles, beautiful glossy pictures of all his, of you his know, seventy thousand children. Yeah. children and his wife and. Um, suddenly, he doesn't want you to leave his family out of it. Still waiting for the, um, still waiting for the the piece on his brother, mind you. Not seeing that anytime soon. Um, and I think it's probably in the in the interests of balance. Uh, you know, we should point out that Chris Minns and his family have also oh, been doing the rounds, and it, 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 it's it's a standard the, play. It's I, the standard, you know. Um, um, th- like if three weeks before an election humanise the politician and then they go back to, back to being a politician for two and a half years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting one because I feel like it sort of exists in this strange like Charlie Kaufman-esque self-paradox kind of self-commentary thing where like it, it was really, really noticeable in across the time when they would wheel out uh, Jenny Morrison mm. every few weeks because uh, it seems to be the thing that people her like. Hus- husband had made a boo boo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and often like wheeled her out. It was so strange. Like she would be like like I, I remember when she did this. They did the sixty minutes. Oh, when uh, he played guitar. When he played his little uke, um, <laughs> uh, and she it was it was such a strange thing. Like she took the rap basically for a lot of his stuff. She was mm-hmm. like the holiday when when you know he was famously kind of. Uh, pilloried for going on holiday during the great bushfires of 2019 and 2020. Yeah. Uh, and that was like, and she like tearfully was like, I was just trying to do the right thing for my family and I'm very sorry that this is how it came. And it was and like. And he was just sitting right next to her, letting her take the Yeah, yeah just smiling serenely. <laughs> Which is what you want in a prime minister. Um, Good but work, Jane. Keep, the, the, the keep other, going, keep the, going. The other really notable thing, all of the, every single piece that did this that, that that kind of focused in on jenny morrison and how she was his like secret political weapon and she was the you know if everyone i remember there was like james masola wrote for the nine papers like if 50.1 percent of voters met jenny morrison he'd be in government for life <laughs> oh, that's like, right and it's ah. and the funny thing was is that you're like it's like ex- how stupid do you think your readers are but this but also can you hear yourself like because yeah. there's this whole thing and they, they did it in the 60 minutes thing too every piece would be like would say something like this, would talk about how she's his secret weapon, explicitly making her a political figure, yeah. explicitly making her part of his PR plan. Yeah. And then they say, and it's really unfair how she keeps getting dragged into these things. <laughs> <laughs> and they seem to not be able to connect those two thoughts at all. It is like it is like a satire, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there was one article that, um, you know, I love it when an article f- um, flames Twitter. <laughs> it's always a, it's always fun, and this article was um, on Insider.com, and it's headlined: "I'm an NYU student who studied abroad in Florence. I hated every aspect of my semester abroad." Uh, <laughs> it, is it a good piece? Just would you say? Is it good I mean, journalism? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think a lot of the criticism. I mean, I'll give you a taste. Like it's got all these subheads throughout. It's designed to, you know, it's clickbait essentially. Like, um, and it, even if you, you know, if you didn't even want to read the whole thing, it's got really big black, you know, bolded, quite, quite long headlines, head, yeah. subheads. Like yeah. <laughs> for starters, living with seven people was not easy. And then the next one is, the pressure to travel on weekends became too much for me. And then the next one is, throughout my semester in Florence, Italian people were hostile towards me. 
<laughs> and then the next one, my life back in New York went on without me and it felt like I was wasting a semester. Um, and I, when I look at this, and this is I'm no shade on the writer because, you know, she's pretty much saying I'm a journalism student. There's a lot of pressure to get published mm. when you're a student and it feels like these first-person pieces uh, you know, there, there's also a lot of pressure to produce these first-person pieces. Yeah, it's, I, it's an interesting one because I sort of I, I think back to to my uh, my study abroad um, experience, which oh, I love. Charlie, by the way, where did you go? <laughs> I went. I went. Uh, I went to London. Um, oh, uh, well, I mean, I guess you're allowed because you're from. You're kind of from that. Yeah, it was, it was it was it was not a huge culture shock for me. Uh, Kingston <laughs> University, wonderful, wonderful place. I had a, I had a great time. Um, but it, I, I think it's one, one thing that really does uh, looking think what this made me think of was sort of like kind of the yeah the, the the work that you're trying to produce while you're a student journalist, and and often you know it's it's often the hardest time to. The hardest journalism you'll ever do because you have no experience, no yeah. contacts. You know, no one trusts you with their story. You don't. You don't. You can't even say like on th- the first day I started at Crikey, a weight was lifted my shoulder because I could say, "Hi, I'm Charlie Lewis with Crikey." I was no longer I'm Charlie Lewis freelance. I, uh, I'm, I'm I'm writing for a for a student newspaper that you've never heard of. <laughs> Would you like to tell me anything secret, kind of thing? So like like. Would, would you like? Would, would you like to trust me with all yeah, of would your you like inside to confess any crimes at all, sir? Like, um, so actually, I mean, and by the way, I think that's a great process to go through because you're never like it. Just gets it only gets like like, like a lot of this stuff. That's great for you because you develop quite a thick skin because a lot of people do you sod off. And if you can still produce some half decent work out of that process, you kind of know mm. that you could probably do it. Um, the thing that uh, in the, the kind of the, the gap that that creates, though, the, the difficulty of and the time that you need to put into making those stories um, means that the easiest thing that you can do to get published is to write first person stuff like this is, is you can write an opinion piece or an experience piece. Um, And increasingly, so there's a, there's a kind of clicky market for that, as you say. So, yeah, the, the thing that's that – it's, it's pretty toe-curling reading, <laughs> to be honest. But the thing you do say is, what is this – like, what editor exactly. allowed her to subject mm-hmm. herself to the, to this level of – Because well, – well, that's been a lot of the commentary. I mean, I think especially from people who work in news is like, how how did the editor let – you know, with a, with a bit of massaging, this could have been a, an interesting story about a culture shock or yeah, – Yeah, an interesting you know, reflection on, you know, things not working out as you expected or – Yeah, or, yeah. you know, she, she was – trying to I think at one point she was she's she already had a um internship for an online publication and so she had to juggle that with this semester abroad and all this sort of stuff and you know um all cynicism aside it, there could have there could have been a different article in this yeah. but it is so clearly dri- um it's you know she she wasn't given the guidance towards that and instead it just comes across as a very sort of entitled, um, you know, mm. sort of naive piece. And, yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's you know, that, that, that to me is the interesting part of it. It's like, you know, you, you, you have to be able to trust an editor not to leave a f- footprint for your future self as a journalist uh, yeah, where you're yeah, apologising yeah. for that dick article. <laughs> <laughs> that went viral, you know, yeah, while you yeah. were still at uni. For sure. I, mean, I, I pitched a lot uh, 
when I was in my last years of uni to like various publications. And I think I got knocked back by it all but about one or two. And, and that was very bruising at the time. But, yeah. I'm, but I, I look back at some of the trash that I pitched and I'm really glad it didn't get published. So, yeah, when you get a piece like this, there are two kind of like ethical things you can do as an editor. One is to say, sorry, that's not for us. Don't email me again. <laughs> or, you know, or, you know, give it another crack. Um, or the other one is like, yeah, all right. So there's these problems with it, but let's t- like, I'm going to take the time out, and and no one has the time to do that anymore. And it's one of the real problems with modern journalism is that there isn't the uh, mechanism there necessarily for that kind of back and forth to make this into a good piece. Yeah. So the the the, the more kind of the more ethical thing to do be like, sorry, just it's not really there. Yeah. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform, and you can follow us on Twitter. At Nadj Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs>